Welcome to another episode of Try iPod, the MD-PhD admissions podcast. Today, I'm here with another tri-institutional alum, Dr. Helene Rosenberg. Welcome. Thank you. So, Dr. Rosenberg, um, I start every interview with this basic question, what do you do and why? Okay, well, first I wanted to mention that I'm not actually a Tri-I alum. I'm an alum from way back when it was Rockefeller and Cornell alone. So I come from the dark ages when you know, dinosaurs walked the earth. So I hope that what I have to say is still meaningful and relevant to students. So I'm going to start by telling you that I've taken a little bit of a, a circuitous route to where I am now. After I completed uh, the graduate school and then medical school, I completed two of three years of an internal medicine residency, which was beyond painful for me. I just could not take care of patients. It was just emotional turmoil from really minute one, and I realized that I, I needed to get back to the lab. And when I decided to choose a lab, um, I chose one not for the subject per se, but because I felt some specific technology in order to become more current, which everyone's going to laugh because, again, we're so old, I felt that I needed to learn molecular cloning methods. Now, that's so old-fashioned now, too. That was just becoming important to all work, not, and that was, used to be when I was in graduate school that was available just to a few specific labs. You know, just again, to date myself, PCR didn't exist back then, so this was just becoming you know, available. And as luck would have it, I was fortunate to have the opportunity in my postdoc lab to clone the first two genes from human eosinophilic leukocytes, and just things took off from there. So from then, I've been fortunate to be employed as a principal investigator in the uh, NIAID, National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, intramural program since 1991. And although I picked my postdoc lab not because of the subject, I've been essentially doing the same thing ever since. And our work focuses on uh, cellular immunology and lung inflammation in particular, including the role of eosinophils. And we're also interested in respiratory virus infection and specifically how inflammation alters the pathogenesis of respiratory virus infectious disease. So that's a long answer, but I wanted to get across the concept that sometimes, you know, even if you don't have a plan, uh, things can work out. And sometimes maybe it's better not to have too much of a hard and fast plan because, um, you know, sometimes things have a way of working out um, despite that. I think that that's something that uh, a lot of the current students could hear as well um, as they go through their education and have to plan uh, exactly what they want, not only what they want to specialize in, but, you know, where they're going to be or just where their interests will take them. Things can go wrong, and that's not always a bad thing. What experiences do you think you brought with you when you came to um, what we now know as a tri-institutional program as a first year? I worked for three years, including intercession and summers, in the lab of Dr. William P. Jenks at Brandeis, and I was basically treated pretty much like a postdoc. 
Um, we were studying biochemical enzyme reaction mechanisms, and I was blessed to have Dr. Jenks as a first mentor. I learned how to think as a scientist, how to learn from experiments that worked, and especially those that don't. And likewise, the, the basic science classroom preparation that I got at Brandeis University was second to none. And again, I want to emphasize back then, this was comp totally unusual. No one did things like that, whereas I now see students coming here to the NIH, even coming from undergrad, that many, many, many students have had, if not identical, they've had similar opportunities, which is a nice thing to see. Uh, so I was very fortunate to come to Rockefeller uh, classroom, lab, that whole thing, very, very, very prepared. On the other hand, that said, I was fully unprepared for the emotional climate at what was then the Rockefeller University. But if that statement resonates with anyone who is listening to this, um, my email and phone number are in the directory. And I encourage any student who is there, or any applicant, or uh, who uh, would like to talk with me more, please feel free. I love students. I have plenty in my lab, and I'm always happy to chat with anyone who wants to chat about anything that with whom that resonates. Great. Um, yeah, it's definitely worth pointing out that uh, all the alumni are usually pretty available to um, current students, especially. Uh, they're definitely an invaluable resource. How did you deal with the transitions that you need to make between the medical clinical training and the thesis research and then back to the medical clinical uh, clerkships? I like very much working in the lab, and we'll talk about that more in a little bit, too. Um, I didn't see that as a huge problem because I guess we sort of anticipated it as part of the program. And sort of working in the lab and writing were kind of my favorite things to do then and still my favorite things to do. Um, and I guess, um, you know, I didn't think of it as that much of a, a huge deal because we sort of were told it was going to happen. So that, among many things, were, were not something that I found as too much of a trial and tribulation. I think I tend to ask that question because, to me, it feels like it could be very jarring um, because I, I mean, those yeah, are two I mean, disciplines that seem entirely different in terms of the way you work. They are indeed. They are indeed. And um, I think some people like more one thing more than another. Um, they are, they are very different, but I guess I sort of anticipated that. Um, and the students, at least back then, were also very, very different from one another. But I guess uh, of many things I didn't anticipate, that was one thing that I sort of did. Did you feel uh, adequately supported at every stage of your studies by the um, sort of wider institutional environment? And that, that's a, a dinosaurs walking the earth kind of question again. <laughs> um, uh, the MD-PhD program back then, and we're talking in the late 70s, early 80s, was a relatively small component of Rockefeller and a relatively small component of Cornell. So, and again, because of the place and time, there wasn't really that much talk about supporting students at all anywhere, certainly not 
the way there is today. And I know I've learned very much about the things that Dr. Anderson has instituted, which I wholly applaud. And, you know, at least from my perspective, and again, this is my perspective, this may not be shared by everyone, I just felt you were pretty much on your own and things did work out or didn't work out, but you were pretty much had to keep your eyes open and, you know, you needed to make things work. Now, I mean, I'm fortunate things worked out for me. Things could have gone better at various stages of the game, but my impression, again, this is mine, and again, we're talking about the olden days, is that you were there and your job was to do your job and there wasn't, no one talked about support programs. And again, this may have been a place and time that probably has gone by for the better. I think to, to clarify what that usually means, um, especially from the perspective of people like Dr. Anderson, um, there's been a lot of recent scholarship to indicate that students from uh, widely different backgrounds do need a little bit more support in terms of just being able to see themselves represented. That's usually what that means in terms of like, uh, well, like we have like faces that's for uh, the female students so they can kind of um, elect to be in their own company in those uh, in those meetings and in those dinners, that sort of thing. So it's really more about seeing themselves represented in the wider environment. Um, but I can definitely see how it would have been, how that's something that has kind of developed over time. I, I would hope so. It was a very different experience for me, and um, I learned a lot from it, and I'm glad to hear that uh, a lot more thought is being put into people's, um, you know, just you know, supporting students and making sure that everybody just sort of feels that, you know, there's, you know, uh, someone behind them because that's a good thing. You mentioned before that you'd be uh, willing to speak with uh, current students. So how would you characterize your current relationship to the program as a graduate? I'm extremely glad in retrospect to have gone through the MD-PhD program. Right now, my career is pretty much 100% research, and I am extremely fortunate to have this opportunity. It is harder now for current students. Uh, the United States has not been kind to scientific research in a very large way since my time and current students now. Um, medical school is very broadening in terms of your perspective on biology and certainly having the opportunity to learn how to do research is, you know, phenomenal. Um, I, my relationship to the program now is my, the students in my, I have post-bac students, a lot of them who apply to the program. No one's gotten in yet, but I'm still hope springs eternal and um, I always encourage my students to consider applying because the program is very strong. And again, I'm always, always happy if any students want to talk about um, research or current climate or 
whatever I can offer from, you know, the position of an older person, and certainly I'm happy to talk to um, particularly any women students. Um, they're always free to call me. I know Ruth, Ruthie has uh, given some students my name. Or if I knew then what I know now, Rockefeller would have been a much happier place for me, but I think everyone feels that way. You know, when I was when I came as a student, I was not um, fully aware of how to make it work for me. Now, as in my 59th year of life and having gone through everything, I, I would know how to make it work. But I think that everybody, you know, would have feels that way. But, you know, from the perspective of someone who is now, you know, a, a, a senior citizen, um, what I would, I, you know, I, what would I advise? I would say to anyone is find out what you love, find out what you want to do, and find out what you're good at and stick with it in as much as possible. You know, if you have a decision between politics and substance, go with the substance. And not everything that comes by your way is an opportunity. Think very hard when you make decisions. Not everything, you know, that someone puts in front of you that looks good is good. You know, really think hard about what you're doing. Is this something you really want to do? Is this something that's really good for you? Because uh, you really, in the end, you want to wake up in the morning like I am when you're 59 and look forward to going to work. Because you know, in the end, you you just you know you want to be happy and you want to be make the decisions that are right for you, not necessarily right for everybody else. You said that you do pure research now. You don't have much of a clinical role. Right, I don't. Did you ever? That's good. I did two years of uh, of a, an internal medicine residency. I woke up every morning crying. I had a, I left the day at the end of the day, and I'd sit in my car crying for a half an hour because I was before I could drive home. And that's when I realized I just couldn't do this anymore. And that's a good example of, you know, you just have to say you just that that was doing that was learning from a wrong decision. And you know, I thought that I would want to be, you know, your triple threat or whatever it was, and I just said I can't do this. And, you know, I mean, you can't, uh, my husband said at the time, he said, you know, having an education means you don't have to cry when you get up in the morning. You don't have to cry in the car before you drive home. It was like, I was shocked. I thought that, you know, every, that every, that this is what I'd be good at. And everything was, oh, but you're so nice. And I, but I had nothing to do with it. I just couldn't do this. I felt so incompetent. I felt I could never know enough, and people were dying. And, you know, here at the NIH, I'm not very subtly this pressured. This is getting back to my last piece of advice about opportunities and stick with what you're good at. I'm under not a whole lot, under a whole lot of not very subtle pressure nowadays to do clinical work. And I know myself. I know if I start doing that, I'm going to be crying before I go to work. And 59 years old is way too old for that. It's not an opportunity for me, regardless of what everybody says. I need to stick with what I'm good at and stick with what I like. And what I'm good at is doing experiments and doing science and writing papers and, all, and training students. Taking care of patients, even at a distance, is not... I found that out. I'm not good.
good at that. I, was, I always say if I had it to do again, maybe I would have done a pathology residency. But I don't think it's a bad thing making a mistake. No, I mean, I, I learned a lot. I actually, you know, can talk doctor. And I know that, A, I didn't die. B, um, I don't sit here and go, oh, well, you know, I wouldn't put it up with this. Maybe I should go and be a real doctor. I go, no, I don't know, you know. And I can advise people about stuff. I have students here, and we talk about a lot about what happens if you think you made a wrong turn. You don't die. That's definitely worth hearing, especially for students who come here with a lot of a full head of steam based on their undergrad experience and having never really had the room to fail or have be significantly challenged in that way. You know, you just say, hmm, this is not good. What do I need to do to fix this? And in fact, the funny thing looking back, because when I was in residency, you know, I let them know I didn't, I didn't march out in a huff. I let everybody know in plenty of time. And I found out in retrospect, the people who are most at residency who are most supportive of me doing this were the ones who are happy themselves and the ones who were all huffy about how I was ruining my life, who now I realize this is an older person, were the ones who are least happy with their own decisions. You know, that's not just a, a women's issue. That's an everybody issue. And I've made a, you know, made a, I've made a lot of decisions that have been popular and unpopular over the years here. And I'd always be happy to talk to any students, at, you know, in the MD-PhD program. I'd always encourage anyone to email me. It's easier to get to me than calling me. And I'd always be happy to talk to any students about, you know, making it work in as much as possible. Great. Well, thank you so much. It was a pleasure to have you on. A pleasure. That was another episode of Try iPod, the MD-PhD admissions podcast. Good night, everyone.